Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Well, hello and welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. And we have an extraordinary episode lined up for you today on Ask of Expert. Now, I want to introduce you to today's topic by asking a question. If you had to guess, what do the Coca-Cola logo and Beatles classic Let It Be have in common? The answer? They're both pieces of intellectual property. Intellectual property isn't the first thing people think of when they set out to write a song or create a new brand. But if you don't know the ins and outs of intellectual property, affectionately referred to as IP, you could be in danger of having your work compromised. And you could also be missing out on significant opportunities to monetize your work. We're going to be diving into this topic today with a celebrated expert in the field, TDS lawyer, Sylvia D'Souza. Nationally recognized as a woman of influence, Sylvia's practice concentrates in the area of business law with an emphasis on intellectual property and technology law. Her practice also includes intellectual property transactions, cannabis advertising and marketing, intellectual property protection, trademarks, copyrights, patents, and licensing matters. Welcome, Sylvia. I am so excited to get going on this topic. Let's roll. Let's roll. And thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited to be doing this. I don't do too many podcasts. I'm very happy to be able to do this with you. So let's kick it off uh, because I think, first of all, it's important to note that this episode isn't just for technology companies or for people who maybe are are developing uh, technology or an app. Really, it's for any business that has technology that they want to protect or or look after into the future. So maybe we should start with like, what is intellectual property? Intellectual property is intangible property. Every business has intellectual property and you may think you don't have any, but you do. And the question then becomes how valuable is it to your business, to you? Because as we all know, we do not have unlimited time and we don't have unlimited money. And so you do have to be uh, smart about what is the IP that I have? Is it valuable? If yes, then let's protect it. And we'll talk about that later on. So what is IP? What you have in your business for sure is a trademark. And a trademark could be a word mark. It could be a logo, for example. Other types of IP is patents. So if you have an invention, you could use the patent system to try to protect your invention. Another type of IP is trade secrets. We all have trade secrets in our business. It's the information that gives you the competitive advantage over your competitor and that you try to sort of keep secret. And you may not be doing it intentionally, but there is information like customer lists, for example, that you're not sharing with the public because it's important to you. It gives you a competitive advantage. Other types of IP would be the copyright. If you are a technology-based business uh, and you have software code that's helping you run your business to make it more efficient, for example, that's a copyrightable work. And so that's IP. Uh, Domain names are IP. Social media handles are IP. So as I'm describing this to you, I bet now you're saying, yep, she's right. I have IP in this business. Now, the question for you is, what's valuable to you? That is the big question. And where do you start? So at what point do I step back and go, okay, well, I've got all of those things, but how do I prioritize? Who do I talk to? Like what's step number one? 
So the way I describe it to my clients, because it could be overwhelming, and, and, you, and you probably, may, some of you may be already getting agitated and saying, oh my goodness, I do have stuff, but I hope I'm not losing the value. I'm not losing it to my competitor. So the way I describe it to my clients is, listen, just get a piece of paper or go on to, onto your computer and create a table. And the first column is, what is my IP? And I've given you examples. So based on this podcast, you may want to go back and re-listen to it and then say, okay, she talked about domain names. What are my domain names? That goes into column one. She talked about trademarks. What are my trademarks? What are my logos? What are my word marks that I'm using to sell my services or my goods? Put that on that column one. Social media, what are my handles? Add that in. Uh, trade secrets, uh, what are, what's confidential information that I have in my business? Put that in. So that's column one. And then column two is what I tell my clients is put on, is it valuable to me? And so then you go through each item that you've put in column one and you ask yourself, is it valuable? Yes or no. And then for column three is if valuable, do I want to protect it? So how do I know if it's valuable? I think everything is valuable, but how do I know whether it's actually something worth protecting? For, for some of those IP items, you will know whether they're valuable or not. For example, a trademark. You will have a, what I call a house mark. That's your main mark. That is valuable because it's, it's what people know you for. So you should consider whether you want to protect that. But you'll also have what I call submarks. For example, you may have a tagline that you use in your business. And then you ask yourself, like, how important is this tagline? If someone decided to steal it and use it in their business, will I be, will I be upset? Would I be okay changing it? Or if someone sent me a cease and desist letter and I don't think there's confusion, do I want to hire a lawyer to fight it? Or do I want to say, I want to save my money. I'm not going to hire a lawyer because it's not an important tagline for me. I'll let them have it. I'll change it. You'll know, not for everything, you're right, but you'll know on on that column one, when you've listed everything, 80% you'll know what's valuable to your business. The other 20%, you may then want to call me and say, okay, you know, this section here is valuable, but these items down here, I'm not sure. Could we have a chat about it? And then I'll, I'll ask more questions to try to see, and, and then also give you quotes and costs, right? And then when you get that information from me, because you won't have that, you may say, oh, that's too expensive. It's not worth it for me, Sylvia. So you put not valuable. And so I'll work with clients on that and sort of prioritize for them once we have discussions as to how does it fit into your business? Where do you, where do you use it? Is it your main product or is it a sub product? And based on those answers, we are able to prioritize as to what's important and not. Okay. So you said first column, second column, you're prioritizing everything. And then I interrupted you. So that's fine. Keep going on that. So the third column is it's valuable. And then do I want to protect it? So how do you protect IP? And there's three ways of doing it for the main types of IP. That's how I describe it to my clients. The first way is you use agreements. And and for trade secrets, you could only use agreements. There's there's no other system uh, in place that the government has put in place to protect trade secrets. The second way is you file an application with the appropriate IP office. And the third uh, way, third way doesn't apply to all types of IP is you rely on common law, which are common law rights. And that that applies for sure to trademarks. And then you ask yourself, do I want to protect it using one of those methods? And really the two methods that it comes down to is the application and the agreement. And so you say yes or no. And then the big point that you need to realize with respect to intellectual property is it's national in scope. 
So there's no such thing as an international trademark or an international patent. You do have to figure out where you're going to protect. So for a lot of my clients, we'll want to file uh, and get protection uh, for their IP in Canada and the United States. But you do have to figure out what countries will generate you revenue. And that's how I sort of help clients work through which countries and, and, and identify the appropriate countries, because there are costs, again, and time associated with IP protection. And so you want to be smart about where you're spending your money. You may want to file all over, all over the world, but if you're not generating revenue there, why spend and have an expense in a country where you're not making money? And so I work with clients to figure out, okay, what's important to me? Um, what jurisdiction will uh, benefit from my business? And then um, I provide quotes on what it's going to cost to file in those particular countries on the different types of IP. And a lot of it, it will be filing applications um, and, and trying to get the protection through the various IP offices. So when you say costs, you're not talking just about your fees. There are certain costs that are associated with filing in the various countries. Can you give us some sort of idea as to what those costs look like? For sure. So for example, a trademark in the U.S. So for a Canadian trademark, for a simple application, no opposition, no office action, with three classes, and, and when people phone me, I explain what all that means, but uh, on average, I find that there's three classes in each application. You're looking at a government fee of about 530 for those three classes. So adding the government fee to the legal fees and to the search fees, you're looking at about a 2,900 Canadian for a Canadian trademark. And for the U.S., again, simple application, no office action, uh, no opposition. You're looking between three to 5,000 U.S. to get a trademark filed. You know, Mexico, you're probably looking at about 1,500 to 2,000 to get um, a trademark filed. So you can see the numbers start adding up. It's not cheap. And so I work with clients to prioritize the jurisdictions and to prioritize the IP. Now, on some IP, you could wait, right? So let's say you want to go into Brazil, but you're not sure if that's going to be a very important market for you. What I've done is I file in Canada and the U.S. for a client, for example. I say, you diarize six months or 12 months, and we'll have another chat. We'll talk about Brazil. And for trademarks, we could do that. We could wait. We could wait one, two, three. We could wait years. The risk is that someone will come in and file a hedia, and now you have a problem, depending on the country. That's a trademark scenario. On patents, unfortunately, you don't have luxury of time. You do have a fixed due date where you have to find out and decide on which countries you think are going to generate revenue. So just to, to finish off on the trademark, so you make application to these, these countries. Timeline can vary. Yeah. And then how long is a trademark for? Like, do you have to keep filing or is it a lifetime? What happens? So if you're successful in getting a trademark registered, for example, the good news is you have it for, on average, most countries, and every country is different, 10 years. So Canada's 10 years, the U.S. is 10 years, and I file all over the world. You name it, I have probably filed an application, and for sure in every continent except for Antarctica. And on average, it's 10 years. Patents, on the other hand, again, every country is different, but Canada and the United States, if you get an issued patent, 20 years. So you get a 20-year monopoly. So the good news is if you're successful, 
you do get a nice period of time where you don't have to look at fees and, um, and government fees or legal fees. So a patent then, does that, I always think of patents as, you know, an invention that you're protecting. Can you go into a little bit more detail on what would encompass getting a patent versus a trademark? Sure. So on a patent, in order to get patent protection, you have to file an application. And one of the tips that that I'm going to leave with you is the disclosure issue. That's what I call it. If you've described how your invention works to someone and you do not have confidentiality obligations on that disclosure, you may have lost the ability to get patent protection, i.e. file an application, in most countries of the world. The good news is that Canada, United States, and Australia, and I have a lot of clients that go into Australia, has the concept of a grace period. Those countries recognize that people don't know the laws and unfortunately do make mistakes, but they give them one year from the date of disclosure to get the application in. But if you don't do that, you're out of luck. So now your your invention, you just can't get protection on it. Um, In fact, I have a case, I've actually have two cases where on one, I represent the the inventor owner and uh, we sent a cease and desist letter to someone asking them to stop manufacturing my client's product. And what the letter that I got in response was, thank you for your cease and desist letter, but we don't think your patent is valid. We think there was a disclosure in, and, and, then, and then they gave me the facts before your client filed. And it was outside the one year. And so now we're dealing with that issue. And then on another file that I've just, was having, I had a conference call on that on Monday, that client is the licensee. He wants to invest quite a bit of money to manufacture the product that's owned by someone else who has patents. And so what you do when you're, when you're put, when a client's putting a lot of money in for marketing and manufacturing, you do due diligence. And my, and the big due diligence on a patent license agreement is, are the patents strong, right? Could someone attack it? Because if they do attack it, you don't have your monopoly. And and that's why you're paying your royalties because you get this monopoly that you could, that, uh, and and you could just go and manufacture it ahead of everybody. And so we did our due diligence, another disclosure issue. And the, the person that's going to license to my guy, what happened there was his patents may be challenged because he disclosed his invention to this guy who has now filed a protest at the patent office trying to invalidate the patent application. So the disclosure concept is critical. Like if you want to have chats with people about your great idea, it's okay, but get a non-disclosure confidentiality agreement signed because that's a confidentiality obligation that's tied to your disclosure and therefore you don't have a disclosure issue. And get it in writing because, I mean, on one of my files, they're saying, oh, that that person promised that they were not going to tell anybody. So there is confidentiality tied to the disclosure, but it's one person's word against the other, unfortunately. So I say to my clients, just get an NDA signed before you start describing how your invention works. So you've got this great invention. You're very careful. You have NDAs uh, signed by people that you've you've discussed it with. You're not quite finished your development. At what stage do you actually embark? Because if the end product ends up being a little bit different than what you think it is right in the moment, 
Is there some guideline on when you actually apply? Yeah. So the way I describe it to my clients is there's really two types of patents. There's the provisional patent application and there's the what I call the full patent application. And if you're still doing R&D, um, but you're afraid someone's going to get ahead of you and get that filing date, then you file a provisional. It's quick, cheap, and easy. I could, I could file a provisional within, I don't know, three, four days. Now, the con on a provisional is it's only good for a year. And so when that year expiry date's coming up, I send an email to my client and I say, hey, by the way, your provisional is about to expire. Do you want to file a full patent application? And so at that point, they may say, yeah, let's go ahead. I'm comfortable that I've done all my R&D. Let's get the full application in. And then you put more stuff in there. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Again, we keep talking product. Do you put a patent only on physical things that you're, you're developing, or does it apply to technology as well? It applies to a lot of things. So products, number one, compositions, number two, uh, processes, number three. Software code is difficult. The cases and the patent offices in Canada and in a, and in a lot of uh, patent offices around the world, they have more difficulty uh, issuing patents on software care uh, code. There's strategies that I work with with clients on to try to get a patent on software code. There's certain things you could try to do to make the chances higher. Um, but um, there's more openness in Canada to doing it versus when I started practicing years ago. Um, so that's the good news, but it's still difficult. And technology is is just so rampant and coding and the languages. And I mean, what you, you develop today you, is going to be obsolete two months from now. So is it really worth it? And have you, in your experience, seen a lot of challenges? Like are, are people really being taken to the cleaners by not having the appropriate patents when it comes to uh, mostly on the coding side of things? And any stories on, on where if there had been a patent, it would have saved somebody? Not really. I think for strategy purposes, if you decide not to get a patent, and I had this discussion um, with a client recently, um, it just means that you better be the first off the mark you're, you're like that sort of the racetrack. You're the first horse out of the gate and you're going to have a strong marketing strategy, a strong brand, a strong trademark, and you're just going out. You're the first player out. And so people remember you when they see copycats or they see a copycat service or a copycat product. Uh, you're the, they'll hopefully remember you and continue with you and, and, um, and you have good quality and they'll, they'll continue um, buying your service or product. Um, I mean, the, pro the practical reality with patents as well, which I do share with my clients is, you know, it's great that you've invested money um, and got an issued patent, but ultimately there's no government fund for you to tap into if someone decides to infringe on your patent. You have to have monies to 
to hire me to go after the bad guy or the bad person to try to stop the infringement. And that could become very costly. So that's the practical side. And some people just, and I, I've had this, I have had clients where they've come to me, I've sent cease and desist letters. And then ultimately they just said, I just can't afford anymore. Like I'm going to let them continue infringing. Like I just can't afford to stop them. Yeah, well, I can see that. So we've touched on the trademarks, on the patents. Uh, do we want to talk about copyright? Copyright is I would say it's probably the weakest type of protection, but it's also the cheapest and easiest. And so with respect to my clients, I say to me, you don't need me on this. Just go on to the SIPO, uh, Canadian Intellectual Property Office uh, website, go on to the copyright section. And in Canada, you could file an application. You don't need me to do it. There's instructions on how to fill it out. Uh, and if you make a mistake, it's they're not serious mistakes. And so for software code and, and most of most businesses will have software code that they may have created. Go do that because that's a copyrightable work. And so for $60, $65 government fee, and without a lot of your time, you could certainly file an application for that code and get a copyright certificate and get some form of protection. And is that where then when you use it, you can put the little emblem? Yes. Yeah. But the little C in a circle, the copyright symbol, but you don't need to have a copyright certificate with respect to copyright, to use that little C symbol. The moment you create something that's fixed, which is tangible and original, then you could put that little C. And the test in Canada for originality is a, is a very simple test. I describe it to my clients as, I'm not Van Gogh. I could do a stick person on my sheet of paper, and that's probably beats the originality test in Canada. <laughs> So it's a very simple <laughs> test to meet. And so I, I tell my clients, go file your copyright application for $60, $65. You don't need me. Just go do it. They'll give you some leverage. Well, and it's so refreshing because, you know, thinking about filing patents and trademarks, it's daunting to have an easy win, a easy win from a lawyer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You don't need me for that. I can't. You got to copyright that. That's right. That's a tagline right there. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, now how, so we've done all this and any other pieces that we should touch on and what we should be protecting and then let's go into how we protect it. Once you figure out it's valuable, that you want to protect it and you've identified the countries, call me or call your lawyer because that's, that's the next step. But you have to do that analysis, identify, and, and do the analysis on whether it's valuable. You may find that a lot of it's not, and you may find a few pieces that are, and now you know the strategy on what you need to do on that. And then how about ownership of it? So if I own a company and I have the trademarks and patents or whatever it is that I have, does that stay with the company? Is it important when you're filing what name goes on it? How does that work? So ownership is critical. And in fact, I just got off the phone today and I, and I, and I said to this prospective client, you're giving me heartbreak. Um, and every year I get one of these similar files uh, every year. And it's an ownership issue. The way I tell my clients is there's two myths. The first myth is I hire a contractor. I pay him or her $100,000, let's say, to develop code. I paid him or her. I should be the owner of it. But that's not the law. If there's no discussion with your contractor on ownership of the IP that he or she creates, the contractor owns that IP. And that was the discussion I had 
with a prospective client today. And the other myth is, I've got all these great employees. They've created some IP. I'm paying them a salary. Of course, I'm the owner of that IP. Not necessarily in all cases. Wow. So you may think as a business that you own the IP in your business, but you'd be surprised and you may not. On that note, so first starting with the contractor, um, obviously it would have to be in writing. I think you said if there was discussion about ownership of IP, how locked down does that have to be? And are there certain, is it in a, uh, a contract agreement? That's the best case scenario, getting into a services independent contractor agreement with your contractor. Uh, but as I was saying to the prospective client today, because there's no agreement in that particular case, I said, like, look around for emails, go talk to the person who was reviewing the designs to see if they had discussions with that creator of those designs. Um, and what the, if there was any discussion on IP, like, I'll take whatever I said to him, I just need some leverage. Because in this particular case, the client that called me today, they got a, a notice that they were infringing. And so he called me to say, like, is that true? So I, I like, we paid this person. Um, I said, I don't care how much money you paid. If you had no discussions on IP and there's no agreement, um, you don't own it. So now we have an issue. Wow. And then with the employee, would that be part of an employee contract? I mean, we talk on this podcast a lot about HR and policies and procedures. Yeah. So um, what I tell my clients is um, you should have two types of employment agreements. You have what I call the IP type employment agreement, and then you have the non-IP type employment agreement. The non-IP type is a very is a simpler agreement. It doesn't scare people. And I would use that with non-key employees where they're not involved in IP. And then the IP employment agreement, where there's a lot of IP clauses that I've inserted, um, I would use with key employees and anyone that's creating in your business. That's very good to know. And yeah. that be tied as well to for how long, you know, if they leave employee that they they can't discuss it, like from a confidentiality standpoint, they couldn't say, well, I know how it was coded. So I'm going to go and talk to somebody else who knows that language and do the same thing. Yeah. And all of that goes into that employment agreement. So the IP provision, the confidentiality provision, the non-solicitation clause, the non-competition clause, all of that would go into really the key IP employment agreement because those are the key people in your business and you want to really lock them up. Let's assume that we have done everything right. And, you know, we've got our business, we've got our trademarks, patents, copyrights, everything locked down, employee agree- employment agreements, contract agreements. But that costs a lot of money to get all that done. Is there any way that we can recoup what we spent on there? Like, how do you monetize the, you know, this is, it's an asset that's a value. How do you monetize it? So there's different ways of monetizing. And you may think, and you're right, it costs money. And you may think, I don't have that money, or maybe I don't really have to spend that money. I'll give you a good example of a deal that I worked on a number of years ago, and it was out in the U.S., and I was hired by the investor who wanted to pump money into a startup company who was about to go bankrupt. And I was hired to do due diligence on the IP because it was an IP-based company. And one of the things that I do due diligence on is ownership. 
and the other type of due diligence that I do on these deals is the strength of the IP. In this case, there was a lot of industrial design applications and patent applications that were filed. And so I, I, we, we did an analysis on the strength of those applications to make sure they didn't get attacked um, by third parties. And we also did an analysis of ownership. I found so many issues on the ownership issue to the point where the founder of that bankrupt company would send me emails and said, Sylvie, could you, just, could you just say everything's fine so I could get my money because I'm about to go bankrupt. And I, I couldn't. I, I mean, there was joint ownership issues. And ultimately, my guy was investing in the target. And the target had to be the owner of all the IP. That's what he was investing in. Not having another chef in the kitchen, having an ownership interest in the IP. And so... I would, you know, I would email the founder and I would say, I'm sorry, but we have an ownership, we have a joint ownership issue now. And there's another chef in the kitchen and I need him to sign off saying that he has no ownership interest. So I need an IP assignment signed and that, and that takes time. And the guy wasn't the, 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 the person that had an interest. Um, I don't think he was even in the U S so now we had to track him down. And you know what, when you track down people, um, some people are not just going to sign your IP assignment. They're going to say, oh, I'll sign it. I want $10,000 before I sign that. That's what I want as consideration. So now you got to find 10 grand so you can get their signature on a piece of paper. That's why spending money on some of the issues becomes important because for monetization, one way of monetizing is you're going to sell your company. You're going to flip it. And that prospective purchaser is going to be doing the due diligence that I was hired to do on that on that uh, US deal. And so they're going to be finding mistakes and that those mistakes could cost you a deal. They may walk away and I've seen that happen on some deals that I've worked on, especially when there's open source code issues. They'll walk away because that causes too much friction and too much issues. So that's one way of monetizing is you're selling your business, but you better make sure that all the uh, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. And another example that I have is a a client, medium-sized business, and they decided to sell. And all of their assets, 99% was IP. It was a big deal, probably the biggest deal during that year, because I think it was in 2008, 2009 was during that recession. And we had a prospective purchaser. My guy was uh, a seller. We did that deal within three, four months, which is hard to do those kind of deals in that time period. It was all IP-based. They sent a team to review and do the due diligence on the IP. But this particular client of mine took my advice. He he had the T's uh, crossed. He had the I's dotted. And we were able to close that deal. It was a big, big deal within three to four months because it was done right. And and they got top dollar for, for for their IP. They did very well. Um, and it was IP. I mean, I, I, I joke that I was in a boardroom with the two founders uh, going through the agreement, the definitive agreement. And I said, oh, yeah, we got to apportion the purchase price. And so and they go, oh, just put two thousand dollars for the uh, the chairs and the tables and uh, and, you know, the other little items that come within an office, everything else, which was millions and millions. will go to the IP like it was it was like it was a big deal, but they got top dollar because they did it right. If you're thinking of flipping your company, you got to get it right. Another way of monetizing is licensing. So, I mean, there's three types of licenses. There's the sole license, the non-exclusive license, and the exclusive license. And each of those types of licenses allows you to get another form of revenue. We call that royalty income into your business. And so if there are third parties that are interested in your IP, they may pay you to use your IP. And for example, 
examples of, of, of where you could have a straight license agreement, but you could also find licensing language within a distribution agreement or a franchise agreement. All of these types of agreements will generate revenue for you. I mean, the example that I give is, you know, um, you may be a North American based company. You'd love to go to Brazil, but um, you don't know how to how to make money in Brazil. They have a whole different structure in terms of laws and, and, a, and maybe a distribution structure that you're not familiar with. And so then you enter into a, a license agreement with someone there that you find um, through networking um, and they'll pay you a royalty to be able to use your IP to be able to generate that service or that product in Brazil. And so that way you have time to maybe go in there later on, uh, but at least you're generating some revenue before you go in. So those, that's another type of monetization. A third type is co-development, where you have your IP and you find a, a player in the market or a different market where you, could, you guys could join forces. So you both join forces and each brings IP to the table. And what I, the way I described it is you smash your IPs together and then you create this new product, right? And so then now you can make money on the new product. You would never been able to do that until you got together with that third party and smashed your IPs together, right? So that's another way of monetizing. So there's ways of generating revenue if you decide to keep your IP and there's ways of generating revenue if you decide to get rid of your IP. So there's a value proposition for investing in IP. IP is big. I mean, Google brand, right? It's uh, my, The last number I saw was 458 billion US dollars for the Google, just the brand. I mean, I'm not even talking about if they have inventions in there, just their trademarks and, and their goodwill and their image. That's a lot of money. And I think IP and technology, that's part of what we are um, in, uh, in our society. It's going to go up and up and you have to get on the bandwagon and, and try to generate and, and monetize as best as you can um, to help your business. Having someone like you with the expertise, because you also had had mentioned earlier that this is is federal. Like, there's really no geographic boundaries. You want somebody with expertise, with the knowledge, with the understanding, who's seen the good, bad, the ugly, and the fantastically great things that go on. What if you have a company and you you know someone's listening to this, going, "Oh my gosh!" Like I. I'm in the middle of uh, a discussion. You know, we're not in due diligence yet, but I'm looking at selling my company. I, I, I got to get on this. Is there a point that you've gone too far? Can you come in after the fact sort of type thing? Yeah, you certainly can. There's, uh, I mean, I try to be as creative as I can be. Um, my philosophies, and I tell the people that work with me, is we, we're here to get the deal done. I mean, that's what clients want. Um, and they're paying us to be creative, um, to try to get the deal done. And there's different tools that I use to try to get a deal done. So it's never too late. And one of the things that I suggest to clients uh, is an IP audit. When you're presenting your business to either a venture capitalist, an investor, a prospective purchaser, they're going to be doing due diligence. You don't want them to find the mistakes. So you do, you do an IP audit, and that's I've done that for clients. I will identify your mistakes before you get third parties involved, and I will then tell you what the mistakes are, and we, we clean it up. And so when, when the due diligence comes from these third parties, um, they won't find it because it's been cleaned up, and there's ways of cleaning up most of it. What else can you share with us? Do you have like your top three or four tips that you would give to business owners and leaders? So tip number one, if you're rebranding, you're getting a new trademark and you look before you go public, lock up your social media handles and lock up your domain name because 
I have heard of cases where, uh, and these are big companies that have done a rebrand and, and they're so excited about it. They're out there, they're doing a big splash. And then they realize, ooh, someone forgot to get the domain name. And then when they quickly go to get it registered, guess what? Not available. And with domain names and social media handles, it's first come, first serve. There, there may be ways of getting it back to you, you don't want to be paying for that because domain name registrations are so cheap. So just get it ahead of time before you go public. Good point. That's number one. Okay. Uh, number two, ownership. It's critical. You've heard me say why it's critical. So if you have employment agreements, if you have contract agreements, please go back to them. Make sure that there's IP provisions in those agreements. If you don't have the agreements, you've got to get them in place. And we can work with you on that, but they've got to be in place with your key people, if, 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 if anything at all, get them in with your key people. Third tip, and you've heard me talk about the disclosure issue, don't underestimate it. You could lose your patents if you get it wrong. You may not be able to get protection if you get it wrong. And an NDA is cheap. I could create a template for you. You have it on your computer. You save it as your master. And every time you want to talk to someone, provide them with uh, a non-disclosure agreement using my template and get them to sign off. It'll be quick and easy, but you've got to get those confidentiality obligations tied to any disclosure. And my last point, it does cost a lot of money, but there are government programs out there that you could probably tap into. I'm just going to name two of them. You may be able to use them to pay for some IP protection or to get money to uh, do R&D. The first one is IRAP, which is the federal government program. That's I. R-A-P. And the second program is the CAN Export Program. And that program may be applicable to a lot of the businesses um, that are listening to this podcast because they want to help businesses that are exporting. And if you're exporting, you may be able to get grant money, again, a federal program to pay for IP protection. So I would certainly look into that because you could use that to get some of this in place. Fantastic. One thing before we sign off, because as soon as you said IRAP, the other thing is the SRED uh, tax credits. Do you get involved in that as well? Um, I don't personally do it because uh, you need an accountant to do it. There's okay. a few good accounting firms across Canada that have the special specialists in that. And it's we call them shred credits. Everybody has R&D. Whether you qualify is another question but you should certainly talk to your accountant on whether you qualify. I mean, I had startup clients over the years and that was their cash flow. It was those shred credit payments that they got from the government. Like it's critical, uh, especially for the smaller businesses. It kept them alive and kept them, allowed them to pay their employees or their contractors. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to look into. That's a very good point. Absolutely. Good. Well, this has been a very, very thorough and my brain is just, on fire. So thank you so much, Sylvia. And thank you for all you do for, you know, looking out for businesses' best interest. Sometimes it's not the the sexy stuff that we want to be dealing with when it comes to protecting our IP, but it's so necessary. And to share the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but mostly the great stories of when you can do it right up front and protect people. And when they go to sell their business, they have much higher value because they invested up front with you at their Thank side. You. 
Thank you very much for having me. Please note that the conversation in this podcast is for informational and learning purposes and does not constitute legal, financial, or business advice. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.